Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There are a lot of podcasts out here, and what you add to your playlist matters. The Bellow Collective is a team of power listeners and industry experts who are on a mission to expand the stories you hear and the ways you hear them. They deliver under-the-radar gems your algorithm is missing straight to your inbox every other week. They also publish thoughtful podcast criticism and examine how the podcast industry is growing and changing in real time. Subscribe to the Bellow Collective newsletter and read their latest stories at bellowcollective.com. It's January 31st, 2020. It's the 10th day of the impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump. I'm Margaret Taylor, senior editor at Lawfare. Today, senators listened to the arguments of the parties and then voted 49-51 not to call new witnesses or subpoena new documents. Republican Senators Susan Collins and Mitt Romney voted with Democrats, but the vote was nonetheless unsuccessful. Senate leadership then offered a new procedural resolution to govern how the trial would conclude over the coming days. Closing statements from the parties will occur at 11 a.m. on Monday, and a final vote on the articles of impeachment will occur at 4 p.m. on Wednesday. Democrats offered four amendments to the resolution. The first was an amendment to subpoena acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, Michael Duffy, and David Blair, as well as documents from the White House, the Office of Management and Budget, the Department of Defense, and the Department of State. The second was to subpoena just John Bolton. The third was to subpoena Bolton and allow for one day for a deposition and one day for live testimony. The fourth and final amendment was to require the Chief Justice to rule on motions to subpoena witnesses and documents and to rule on any assertions of privilege. On all four amendments, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell moved to table or defeat them, and all were defeated. Thereafter, the resolution setting out the path for resolution of the trial passed on a 53-47 to party-line vote. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell then asked for unanimous consent to include statements of senators explaining their votes in the congressional record next week, along with a full record of the Senate's proceedings and handling of the impeachment. The Senate then agreed by unanimous consent to allow senators to speak for up to 10 minutes each on Monday. This is the impeachment episode 10. Eternal Lord God, you have summarized ethical behavior in a single sentence. Do for others what you would like them to do for you. Remind our senators that they alone are accountable to you for their conduct. Lord, help them to remember that they can't ignore you and get away with it. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment 
while the Senate of the United States is sitting for the trials, trial of articles of impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. The Majority Leader is recognized. For information of all colleagues, we'll take a break about two hours in. Pursuant to the provisions of Senate Resolution 483, the Senate has provided up to four hours of argument by the parties equally divided on the question of whether or not it shall be in order to consider and debate under the impeachment rules any motion to subpoena witnesses or documents. Thank you. Then, Mr. Schiff, you may proceed. House Manager Adam Schiff. Before I begin, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, the House Managers will be reserving the balance of our time to respond to the argument of counsel for the President. Mr. Chief Justice, uh, Senators, fellow House Managers, and counsel for the President, I know I speak for my fellow managers uh, as well as counsel for the President in thanking you for your careful attention to the arguments that we have made uh, over the course of many long days. Today we were greeted to yet another development uh, in the case when the New York Times reported with a headline that says, Trump told Bolton to help his Ukraine pressure campaign, book says. The President asked his national security advisor last spring in front of other senior advisors to pave the way for a meeting between Rudolf Giuliani and Ukraine's new leader. According to the New York Times, more than two months before he asked Ukraine's President to investigate his political opponents, President Trump directed John R. Bolton, then his national security advisor, to help with his pressure campaign to extract damaging information on Democrats from Ukrainian officials, according to an unpublished manuscript by Mr. Bolton. Mr. Trump gave the instruction, Mr. Bolton wrote, during an Oval Office conversation in early May that included the acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, the President's personal lawyer Rudy Giuliani, and the White House counsel Pat Cipollone, who is now leading the President's impeachment defense. Now you will see in a few moments and you will recall Mr. Cipollone suggesting that the House managers were concealing facts from this body. He said all the facts should come out. Well, there's a new fact which indicates that Mr. Cipollone was among those who were in the loop. Yet another reason why we ought to hear from witnesses. Just as we predicted, and it didn't require any great act of clairvoyance, the facts will come out. They will continue to come out. And the question before you today is whether they will come out in time for you to make a complete and informed judgment as to the guilt or innocence of the President. Now, the Times article goes on to say that Mr. Trump told Mr. Bolton to call Vladimir Zelensky, who had recently won election as President of Ukraine, to ensure Mr. Zelensky would meet with Mr. Giuliani, who was planning a trip to Ukraine to discuss the investigations that the President sought in Mr. Bolton's account. Mr. Bolton never made the call, he wrote. Never made the call. Mr. Bolton understood that this was wrong. He understood that this was not policy. He understood that this was a domestic political errand and refused to make the call. The account of Mr. Bolton's manuscript portrays the most senior White House advisors as early witnesses in the effort that they have sought to distance the President from. 
including the White House counsel. Over several pages, according to the Times, Mr. Bolton laid out Mr. Trump's fixation on Ukraine and the President's belief based on a mix of scattershot events, assertions, and outright conspiracy theories that Ukraine tried to undermine his chances of winning the presidency in 2016. As he began to realize the extent and aims of the pressure campaign, Mr. Bolton began to object, he wrote in the book, affirming the testimony of a former National Security Council aide, Fiona Hill, who had said that Mr. Bolton warned that Mr. Giuliani was a hand grenade who's going to blow everybody up. Now, as you might imagine, the President denies this. The President said today, I never instructed John Bolton to set up a meeting for Rudy Giuliani, one of America's, one of the greatest corruption fighters in America. So here you have the President saying, John Bolton is not telling the truth. Let's find out. Let's put John Bolton under oath. Let's find out who's telling the truth. The trial is supposed to be a quest for the truth. Let's not fear what we will learn. As Mr. Cipollone said, let's make sure that all the facts come out. House Manager Val Dennings. Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, Counsel for the President, Last Tuesday, at the onset of this trial, we moved for Leader McConnell's resolution to be amended to subpoena documents and witnesses from the onset, from the outset. This body decided to hold the question over. You have now heard opening arguments from both sides. You have seen the evidence that the House was able to collect. You have heard about the documents and witnesses President Trump blocked from the House's impeachment inquiry. We have vigorously questioned both sides. The President's counsel has urged you to decide this case and render your verdict upon the record assembled by the House. The evidence in the record is sufficient. It is sufficient to convict the President on both articles of impeachment, more than sufficient. But that's simply not how trials work. As any prosecutor or defense lawyer would tell you, when a case goes to trial, both sides call witnesses and subpoena documents to bring before the jury. That happens every day in courtrooms all across America. There is no reason why this impeachment trial should be any different. The common sense practice is born out of precedence. There has never been, never before been a full Senate impeachment trial without a single witness. In fact, you can see in the slide, in every one of the 15 prior impeachment trials, the Senate has called multiple witnesses. Today, we ask you to follow this body's uniform precedence and your common sense. We urge you to vote in favor of subpoenaing witnesses and documents. House Manager Sylvia Garcia. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Because in terms of fundamental fairness, subpoenas by the Senate in this trial 
would mitigate the damage caused by the President's wholesale obstruction of the House inquiry. The President claims that there is no direct evidence of his wrongdoing, despite direct evidence to the contrary in Ambassador Bolton's offer to testify to even more evidence in a trial. But let's not forget that the President is arguing that there is no direct evidence while blocking all of us from getting that direct evidence. It's a remarkable position that they have taken. Quite frankly, never as a lawyer or a former judge have I ever seen anything like this. And for the first time in our history, President Trump ordered his entire administration, his entire administration, to defy every single impeachment subpoena. The Trump administration has not produced a single document in response to the congressional subpoenas. Not a single page. Nada. That's never happened before. There is no legal privilege to justify the, the blanket blocking of all these documents. We know that there are more relevant documents. There is no dispute about that. It is uncontested. Witnesses have testified in exceptional detail about these documents that exist that the President is simply hiding. President Trump blanket order prohibiting the entire executive branch from participating in an impeachment investigation also extended to witnesses. Twelve in all followed that order and refused to testify. Much of the critical evidence we have is the result of career officials bravely coming forward despite the President's obstruction. But those closest to the President, we are not the ones hiding the facts. The House managers did not hide that evidence. President Trump hid the evidence. And that's why we are the ones standing up here asking you to not let the President silent these witnesses and hide these documents. We don't know precisely what the witnesses will say or what the documents will show, but we all deserve to hear the truth. And more importantly, the American people deserve to hear the truth. Never before has the President been put, put himself above the law and hit the facts of his offenses from the American people like this one. We cannot let this President be different. Quite simply, the stakes are too high. Second, as this builds on what we have been arguing, the Senate requires and should want a complete evidentiary record before you vote on the most sacred task that the Constitution entrusts in every single one of you. I can respect that some of you have deep beliefs that the removal of this president would be divisive. Others, you may believe that allowing this president to remain in the Oval Office would be catastrophic to our republic and our democracy. But regardless of where you are, regardless of where you land on this spectrum, you should want a full and complete record before you make a final decision and to understand the full story. 
It should not be about party affiliation. It should be about seeing all the evidence and voting your conscience based on all the relevant facts. It should be about doing impartial justice. Consider the harm done to our institutions, our constitutional order, and the public faith in our democracy. If the Senate chooses to close its, close its eyes to learning the full truth about the President's misconduct, how can the American people have confidence in the result of a trial without witnesses? Third, the President should want a fair trial. He has repeatedly said that publicly, that he wants a trial on the merits. He specifically said it, you saw a clip, that he wanted a fair trial in the Senate. And that would, like, would, would have to be with witnesses that testify, including John Bolton and Mick Mulvaney. He said that he wants a complete and total exoneration. Well, whatever you say about this trial, there cannot be a total an exoneration without hearing from those witnesses because an acquittal on an incomplete record after a trial lacking witnesses and evidence will be no exoneration. House Manager Jason Crow. Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate, counsel for the President. Last week, the House managers argued for the testimony of four witnesses, Ambassador John Bolton, Mick Mulvaney, Robert Blair, and Michael Duffy. And during the presentations from both parties, it has become abundantly clear why the direct testimony from those witnesses is so critical. And new evidence continues to underscore that importance. So let's start with John Bolton. The President's counsel has repeatedly stated that the President didn't personally tell any of our witnesses that he linked the military aid to the investigations. There is simply no evidence anywhere that President Trump ever linked security assistance to any investigations. As the testimony of Ambassador Sondland and the admission of Mick Mulvaney make very clear, the evidence before you proves that the President not only linked the aid to the investigations, he also conditioned both the White House meeting and the aid on Ukraine's announcement of the investigations. But if you want more, a witness to acknowledge that the President told them directly that the aid was linked, a witness in front of you then you have the power to ask for it. I mentioned uh, this portion, there's a, a slide, I mentioned this portion of Ambassador's manuscript uh, in the beginning, and uh, Manager Schiff uh, referenced it as well. Uh, but he says directly that the President told him this. Now the President has publicly lashed out in recent days in Ambassador Bolton. He says that Ambassador Bolton is, uh, what Ambassador Bolton is saying is nasty and untrue. But denials in 280 characters is not the same as testimony under oath. We know that. Let's put Ambassador Bolton under oath and ask him point blank. Did the President use $391 million of taxpayer money, military aid, intended for an ally at war to pressure Ukraine to investigate his 2020 opponent? Ambassador Bolton reportedly knows, quote, new details about senior cabinet officials who have publicly tried to sidestep involvement, end quote, including Secretary Pompeo and Mr. Mulvaney's knowledge of the scheme. 
Ambassador Bolton has direct knowledge of key events outside of the July 25th call that confirm the President's scheme. Remember, this is exactly the type of direct evidence the President's counsel say doesn't exist. That's partly because they would like you to believe that the July 25th call makes up all of the evidence of our case. The call, of course, is just a part of the large body of evidence that you've heard about the past week, but it is a key part. But Ambassador Bolden has critical insight into the President's misconduct outside of this call, and you should hear it. Take, for example, the July 10th meeting with U.S. and Ukrainian officials at the White House. Dr. Hill testified during the meeting that Ambassador Sondland said that he had a deal with Mr. Mulvaney to schedule a White House meeting if the Ukrainians did the investigations. According to Dr. Hill, when Ambassador Bolton learned this, he told her to go back to the NSC's legal advisor, John Eisenberg, and tell him, quote, I am not a part of whatever drug deal Sondland and Mulvaney are cooking up on this. The truth continues to come out. Again, in an article today, more information. The truth will come out, and it's continuing to. The question here before this body is what do you want your place in history to be? House Manager Hakeem Jeffries. Given our time constraints, we will now summarize the reasons why Mr. Mulvaney, Mr. Duffy, and Mr. Blair are also important. Let's turn first to Mr. Mulvaney. To begin with, Mr. Mulvaney participated in meetings and discussions with President Trump at every single stage of this scheme. We just talked about motive and intent. Well, if you want further insight into the President's motives or intent, further direct evidence of why he withheld the military aid in the White House meeting, you should call his acting chief of staff, who had more access than anyone. Mr. Mulvaney is important because the President's counsel continues to argue incorrectly that our evidence is just hearsay and speculation. Faced with Ambassador Sondland and Mr. Holmes saying this was all as clear as two plus two equals four, the President says they are just guessing. That is simply not true. The evidence is direct. The evidence is compelling and confirmed by many witnesses, corroborated by text messages, emails, and phone records. But if you want more evidence, if you want another firsthand account for why the aid was withheld for the undisputed quid pro quo for that White House meeting, let's just hear from Mick Mulvaney. Over and over again, Mr. Mulvaney has unique insights into all of these questions, your questions. Remember that email exchange between Mr. Mulvaney and his deputy, Rob Blair, on June 27, when Mulvaney asked Blair about whether they could implement the hold, and Blair responded that it could be done, but that Congress would become unhinged? It wasn't just Congress. It was the Independent Government Accountability Office that determined 
that the president's hold violated the law. But if the president's counsel is going to argue without evidence that he withheld the aid as part of U.S. foreign policy, seems to make sense that the Senate should hear directly from Mr. Mulvaney, who has firsthand knowledge of exactly these facts. So let's ask Mr. Blair, let's ask Mr. Duffy if this happens all the time, as Mick Mulvaney suggests. Why at this time, in connection with this scheme, were all of those witnesses left in the dark? Despite the President's refusal to produce a single document, to produce a shred of information in this impeachment inquiry undertaken in the House, his administration did produce 192 pages of Ukraine-related email records in Freedom of Information Act lawsuits, albeit in heavily redacted form. These documents confirm Mr. Duffy's central role in executing the hold. He's on nearly every single email released nearly every single email. Here's an important email from that production. Just 90 minutes after the July 25th call, Mr. Duffy emailed officials at the Department of Defense that they should hold off on any additional DOD obligations of these funds. Mr. Duffy added that the request was sensitive and that they should keep this information closely held. The timing is important, because if the aid wasn't linked to the July 25th call, if it wasn't related, why the sensitive, closely held request made within two hours of that call? Let's just ask. Mr. Duffy. Mr. Duffy and Mr. Blair can testify about the concerns raised by DOD to the Office of Management and Budget, about the illegality of the hold, and why it remained in place even after DOD warned the administration that it would violate the Impoundment Control Act. Now, the President of course, has disputed this fact. But we have demonstrated that OMB was warned repeatedly by DOD officials of two things. First, continuing to withhold the aid would prevent the Department of Defense from spending the money before the end of the fiscal year. And second, the hold was potentially illegal, as turned out to be the case. By August 9th, DOD told Mr. Duffy directly that DOD, the Department of Defense, could no longer support the Office of Management and Budget's claims that the hold would not preclude timely execution 
of the aid for Ukraine, our vulnerable ally at war with Russian-backed separatists. Yet, as Mr. Duffy reportedly told Ms. McCuster at the Department of Defense on August 30th, there was a clear direction from POTUS to continue to hold. Clear direction from the President of the United States to continue the hold. So how did Mr. Duffy understand the clear direction to continue the hold? Why is the President claiming that this wasn't unlawful? When DOD, the Department of Defense, repeatedly warned his administration that it was. Wouldn't we all like to ask Mr. Duffy these questions? Finally, here's another reason why we know this was not business as usual. On July 29th, Mr. Duffy, a political appointee with zero relevant experience, abruptly seized responsibility for withholding the aid from Mark Sandy, a career Office of Management and Budget official, seized the responsibility from a career official. Mr. Duffy provided no credible explanation for that decision. Mr. Sandy testified that nothing like that had ever happened in his entire governmental career. Let's think about that. If this is as routine as the president claims, why is a career official saying he's never seen anything like this happen before? Mr. Duffy knows why. Shouldn't we just take the time to ask him? The American people deserve a fair trial. The Constitution deserves a fair trial. The President deserves a fair trial. A fair trial means witnesses. A fair trial means documents. A fair trial means evidence. No one is above the law. I now yield to my distinguished colleague, Manager Lofgren. Mr. Chief Justice and Senators, it's not just about hearing from witnesses. You need documents. The documents don't lie. There are specific documents relevant to this impeachment trial in the custody of the White House, OMB, DOD, and the State Department, and the President has hidden them from us. This is, of course, an impeachment case against the President of the United States. Nothing could be more important. And the most important documents, documents that go directly to who knew what when, are being held by the executive branch. Many of these records are at the White House. The White House has records about the phone calls with President Zelensky, about scheduling uh, an Oval Office meeting with President Zelensky, about the President's decision to hold security assistance, about communications among his top aides, about concerns raised by public officials with legal counsel. We've heard about Ambassador Bolton's handwritten notes and 
book manuscript and Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's presidential policy memorandum. We know of reports about a number of emails in early August trying to create after-the-fact justifications for the hold, but we haven't seen any of them. They're at the White House, being hidden by the president. I think it's a cover-up. Documents at the State Department. Records about the recall of Ambassador Yovanovitch, about Mr. Giuliani's efforts for the president, about concerns raised about the hold, about the Ukrainian reaction to the hold, and when exactly they learned about it. About negotiations with the Ukrainians for an Oval Office meeting, we know of Ambassador Taylor's first-person cable and notes and Mr. Kent's memos to file. We know about Mr. Sondland's emails with Pompeo and Breckbull and Mulvaney and Perry, but we haven't seen them. They're sitting at the State Department. DOD and OMB also have records, records about President Trump's hold on military aid since the President's lawyers have suggested that having witnesses and documents would make this trial take too long. There will be lengthy court battles, they say. The President might even invoke executive privilege for the very first, very first time in this entire impeachment process. It would be better, we're told, to skip straight to the final verdict to break from centuries of precedent and end this trial without hearing from a single witness, without reviewing a single document that the President ordered hidden. Respectfully, that shouldn't happen. House managers aren't interested in delaying these proceedings. We're interested in the full truth. In a trial that is fair to the parties and to the American people, in the facts that the President's counsel agrees are so critical to this trial. It's why we've said we won't go to court. We'll follow all the rulings of the Chief Justice. We can get the witness depositions done in a week. In fact, I know we can because if you, the senators, order it, that's the law. You have the sole power to try impeachments. If questions or objections come up, including objections based on executive privilege, the Senate itself and the Chief Justice in the first instance can resolve them. The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside. Now, I think that provision in the Constitution means something. It's up to the Senate to decide how to try this impeachment with fairness, with witnesses, and documents. Privileges asserted can be decided using the process that you devise. House Manager Adam Schiff. Senators, before we yield to uh, counsel for the President, I'd like to take a moment by talking about uh, what I think is at stake here. A no vote on the question before you will have long-lasting and harmful consequences long after this impeachment trial is over. We agree with the President's counsel on this much. This will set a new precedent. This will be cited in impeachment trials from this point to the end of history. You can bet in every impeachment that follows, whether it is a presidential impeachment or the impeachment of a judge, if that judge or president believes that it is to his or her advantage that there shall be a trial with no witnesses, they will cite the case of Donald J. Trump. 
They will make the argument that you can adjudicate the guilt or innocence of the party who is accused without hearing from a single witness, without reviewing a single document. And I would submit that will be a very dangerous and long-lasting precedent that we will all have to live with. President Trump's wholesale obstruction of Congress strikes at the heart of our Constitution and democratic system of separation of powers. Make no mistake, the President's actions in this impeachment inquiry constitute an attack on congressional oversight, on the co-equal nature of this branch of government. Not just on the House, but on the Senate's ability as well to conduct its oversight to serve as a check and balance on this President and every President that follows. If the Senate allows President Trump's obstruction to stand, it effectively nullifies the impeachment power. It will allow future Presidents to decide whether they want their misconduct to be investigated or not, whether they would like to participate in an impeachment investigation or not. That is a power of the Congress. That is not a power of the President. By permitting a categorical obstruction, it turns the impeachment power against itself. How do we respond to this unprecedented obstruction will shape future debates between our branches of government and the executive forever. And it's not just impeachment. The ability of Congress to conduct meaningful and probing oversight, oversight that by its nature is intended to be a check and balance on the awesome powers of the executive branch, hinges on our willingness to call witnesses and compel documents that President Trump is hiding with no valid justification, no presidential support. If we tell the President effectively, you can act corruptly, you can abuse the powers of your office to coerce a foreign government to helping you cheat in an election by withholding military aid, and when you're caught, you can further abuse your powers by concealing the evidence of your wrongdoing, the President becomes unaccountable to anyone. Our government is no longer a government with three co-equal branches. The President effectively, for all intents and purposes, becomes above the law. This is, of course, the opposite of what the framers intended. They purposely entrusted the power of impeachment to the legislative branch so that it may protect the American people from a president who believes that he can do whatever he wants. The facts will come out in the end. Even over the course of this trial, we have seen so many additional facts come to light. The facts will come out. In all of their horror, they will come out. And there are more court documents and deadlines under the Freedom of Information Act. Witnesses will tell their stories in future congressional hearings, in books, and in the media. This week has made that abundantly clear. The documents the President is hiding will come out. The witnesses the President is concealing will tell their stories. And we will be asked why we didn't want to hear that information when we had the chance, when we could consider its relevance and importance in making this most serious decision. What answer shall we give?
if we do not pursue the truth now, if we allow it to remain hidden until it is too late to consider on the profound issue of the President's innocent or guilt. What we are asking you to do on behalf of the American people is simple. Use your sole power to try impeachment by holding a fair trial. Get the documents they refuse to provide to the House. Here are the witnesses they refuse to make available to the House, just as this body has done in every single impeachment trial until now. Let the American people know that you understand they deserve the truth. Let them know you still care about the truth, that the truth still matters. Though much divides us, on this we should agree. A trial stripped of all its trappings should be a search for the truth, and that requires witnesses and testimony. Now, you may have seen just this afternoon the President's former Chief of Staff, General Kelly, said that a Senate trial without witnesses is a job only half done. Trial without witnesses is only half a trial. Well, I have to say I can't agree. Trial without witnesses, no trial at all. You either have a trial or you don't. And if you're going to have a real trial, you need to hear from the people who have firsthand information. Now, we presented some of them to you. But you know as well as we, there are others that you should hear from. But let me close this portion with words I think more powerful than General Kelly's, and they come from John Adams, who in 1776 wrote, together with the right to vote, those who wrote our Constitution considered the right to trial by jury the heart and lungs, the mainspring and the center wheel of our liberties, without which the body must die, the watch must run down, the government must become arbitrary. Now, what does that mean? Without a fair trial, the government must become arbitrary. Now, of course, he's talking about the right of an average citizen to a trial by jury. Well, if in courtrooms all across America, when someone is tried, but they're a person of influence and power, they can declare at the beginning of the trial, if the government's case is so good, let them prove it without witnesses. If people of power and influence can insist to the judge that the House, that the prosecutors, that the government, that the people must prove their case without witnesses or documents, a right reserved only for the powerful. Because you know only Donald Trump only Donald Trump of any defendant in America can insist on a trial with no witnesses. If that should be true in courts throughout the land, then as Adams wrote, the government becomes arbitrary. 
Because whether you have a fair trial or no trial at all depends on whether you are a person of power and influence like Donald J. Trump. Body will die, the clock will run down, and our government becomes arbitrary. The Chief Justice moves for arguments from the White House Counsel. Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate, the House managers have said throughout their presentation and throughout all of the proceedings here again and again that you can't have a trial without witnesses and documents, as if it's just that simple. If you're going to have a trial, there have to be new witnesses and documents. But it's not that simple. And that's really something that is a trope that's being used to disguise the real issues, the real decisions that you'd be making on this, on this decision about witnesses. Because there's a lot more at stake there. And let me unpack that and explain what's really at stake there. The first is this idea that if you come to trial, you've always got to go to witnesses, have new witnesses come in and that. But that's not true. In every legal system, and in our legal systems on both civil and criminal sides, there's a way to, to decide right up front in some quick way whether there's really a triable issue, whether you really need to go to all the trouble of calling in new witnesses and having more evidence and something like that. And there's not here. There's no need for that. Because these articles of impeachment on their face are defective. And we've explained that. Let me start with the second article on the obstruction charge. We've explained that that charge is really trying to say that it's an impeachable offense for the president to defend the separation of powers. That can't be right. But it's also the case that no witnesses are going to say anything that makes any difference to the second article of impeachment. That all has to do with the validity of the grounds the president asserted, the fact that he asserted long-standing constitutional prerogatives of the executive branch in specific ways to resist specific deficiencies in the subpoenas that were issued. No fact witness is going to come in and say anything that relates in any way to that. It's not going to make any difference. And on the first article of impeachment, that too is defective on its face. And we've explained, we heard it again today here, that the way they, they have this subjective theory of impeachment, that will show abusive power by focusing just on the president's subjective motives. And they said again today here, that the way they can show the president did something wrong is that he defied the foreign policy of the United States. And we talked, I talked about that before, this theory that he defied the agencies within the executive branch. He wasn't following the policy of the executive branch. That's not a constitutionally coherent statement. The theory of abuse of power that they framed in the first article of impeachment would do grave damage to the separation of powers under our Constitution. Because it would become so malleable, they can pour into it anything they want to find illicit motives for some perfectly permissible action. We heard from a lot of witnesses in the proceedings so far. You've heard 192 video clips, by our count, from 13 different witnesses. There were 17 witnesses deposed in closed hearings in the House, and 12 of them testified again in open hearings. You've got all of those transcripts, so you can see the witnesses' testimony there. 
The key portions have been played for you on the screens. And you've got over 28,000 pages of documents and transcripts. You've got a lot of evidence already. But there's another principle that they overlook when they say, well, if you're going to have a trial, there just have to be witnesses, as if the most ordinary thing is you get to trial and then start subpoenaing new witnesses and documents. That's not true either. And we pointed this out. There's, in the regular courts, the way things work is you've got to do a lot of work preparing a trial called discovery to find out about witnesses and depose them and find out about documents before you get to trial. You can't show up the day of trial and say, oh, Your Honor, actually, we're not ready. We didn't subpoena John Bolton or witness X or witness Y. And now we want to subpoena that witness. Now we want to do discovery. And why does that matter here? Because here, to show up not having done the work and to expect that work to be done in the Senate by this body has grave consequences for the institutional interests of this body, and it sets a precedent. Really, it sets an important precedent for two bodies, for the Senate and for the House. Because what the Senate accepts as an impeachment coming from the House determines not just precedent for the Senate, but really precedent for the House in the future as well. If the procedures used in the House to bring this proceeding here to this stage are accepted, if the Senate says, yes, we'll start calling new witnesses because you didn't get the job done, and whatever process you used to get it here, then that becomes the new normal. It would mean that the Senate has to become the investigatory body. And the principles that they assert they, they did a process that wasn't fair. They did a process that was arbitrary, that arbitrarily denied the president rights. They did a process that wouldn't allow witnesses. And then they came here on the first night. Remember when we were all here until 2 o'clock? And in very belligerent terms said to the members of this body, you're on trial. It will be treachery if you don't do what the House managers say. That's not right. When it was their errors, when they were arbitrary and they didn't provide fairness, they can't project that onto this body to try to say that you have to make up for their errors, and if you don't, the fault lies here. Now, they also suggest that it's not going to take a long time, that they only want a few witnesses. But of course, if things are opened up to witnesses, and it is going to be fair, it's not just one side. It's not just the witnesses that they would want. The president would have to be permitted to have witnesses. And with all respect, Mr. Chief Justice, the idea that if a subpoena is sent to a senior advisor to the president, and the president determines that he will stand by the principle of immunity that's been asserted by virtually every president since Nixon, that that'll just be resolved by the Senate right here, whether or not that privilege exists. 
by the Chief Justice sitting as presiding officer, that doesn't make sense. That's not the way it works. The, the Senate, even when the Chief Justice is the presiding officer here, can't unilaterally decide the privileges of the executive branch. That dispute would have to be resolved in another way, and it could involve litigation, and it could take a lot of time. Because what it suggests, the new normal that would be created then is kind of an express path for precisely the sort of impeachments that the framers most feared. The framers recognized that impeachments could be done for illegitimate reasons. They recognized that there could be partisan impeachments. And if this is the new normal, this is the very epitome of a partisan impeachment. President's Attorney Jay Sekulow. Members of the Senate, over a seven-day period, you did hear evidence. You heard evidence from 13 different witnesses, 192 video clips, and as my colleague, the Deputy White House Counsel said, over 28,000 pages of documents. We did not have the opportunity to cross-examine them. So this isn't going to happen if witnesses are called in a week. Now, that's just the witnesses that have been produced that you have seen by the House managers. You are being called upon to make consequential constitutional decisions. Consequential decisions for our Constitution. We talk about the burden of proof. I've said this before, I'll, I'll say it again, 31 times the manager said they proved their case, 29 times they said the evidence was overwhelming. Manager Nadler, he didn't only say it was overwhelming in his view. On page 739 of the congressional record, he's very clear. He says, not only is it strong, there is no doubt. That's what he says. The one thing that the House managers think the President Council's got right is quoting me, talking about Mr. Nadler, Manager Nadler, as saying, beyond any doubt, it is indeed beyond any doubt. Now, of course, we think that they have not proven their case by any stretch of any proper constitutional analysis. In the Clinton investigation, they talk about witnesses being called, but the three witnesses that were called had either testified before the grand jury or before the House committees. These weren't new witnesses. What Mr. Philbin said is, is correct. Under our constitutional design, they're supposed to investigate. You are to deliberate. But what they're asking you to do is now become the investigative agency, the investigative body. If they needed all this additional evidence, which they said they don't need, and by the way, not only did they say it in the record, this is House Manager Nadler, quote, this on, when he was on CNN back on the 15th of this month, we brought the articles of impeachment because despite the fact that we didn't hear from many witnesses, we could have heard from, we heard from enough witnesses to prove the case beyond any doubt at all. The same can be said of Representative Lofgren. You know we've had, we have evidence proving the case through, for example, at the meeting when Bolton said it was a drug deal. Well, we have fact witnesses. Hill was there, Vindman was there, Sondland was there. So this idea that they haven't had witnesses, 
is that's the smokescreen. You've heard from a lot of witnesses. The problem with the case, the problem with their position is, even with all of those witnesses, it doesn't prove up an impeachable offense. The articles fail. I think it's very dangerous if the House runs up, which they did, articles of impeachment quickly, so quickly that they are clamoring for evidence, despite the fact that they put all of this evidence forward. They got their wish of an impeachment by Christmas. They created the record. Do not allow them to penalize the country and the Constitution because they failed to do their job. With that, Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, Senators, I want to walk through some of the arguments that you've just heard from the President's counsel. The first uh, were arguments made by Mr. Philbin. Mr. Philbin began by saying the House managers assert that you can't have a trial without witnesses. And he said it's not that simple. Actually, it is. Uh, it is pretty simple. It is pretty simple. In every courthouse, in every state, in every county in the country, where they have trials, they have witnesses. And I think you heard Mr. Philbin tie himself into knots as to why this should be the first trial in which witnesses are not necessary. But you know, some things are just as simple as they appear. A trial without witnesses is simply not a trial. That is not what the founders had in mind, not by a long shot. Now, Mr. Philbin says, none of these witnesses would have relevance on Article 2. I guess conceding that they would have relevant evidence on Article 1. But that's not true either. Imagine what you will see when you hear from the witnesses who ran the Office of Management and Budget. Or imagine what you will see when you read the documents from the Office of Management and Budget. What you will see is what they have covered up. What you will see is the motive for their complete obstruction of Congress. When you see not the redacted emails, not the fully blacked out emails that they deign to give in the litigation under the Freedom of Information Act, but you, when you see what is under those redactions, you will have proof of motive. When you see those documents, you will see just how fallacious these non-assertions of executive privilege are. You will see, in essence, what they have covered up. It could not be more relevant to whether their panoply of legal argumentation to justify we shall fight all subpoenas is merely a cover-up in legal window dressing. Now, you also heard Mr. Philbin argue, and again, this is where we expected we'd be at the end of the proceeding, which is essentially they proved their case. They proved their case. We pretty much all know what's gone on here. We all understand just what this president did. No one really disputes that anymore. So what? So what? It's a version of the Dershowitz defense. So what? The president could do no wrong. 
The president is the state. If the president believes that corrupt conduct would help him get reelected, if he believes shaking down an ally and withholding military aid, if he believes soliciting foreign interference in our election, whether it be from the Ukrainians or the Russians or the Israeli prime minister or anyone else in any form that it may take, so what? He has a God-given right to abuse his power. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's the Dershowitz principle of constitutional lawlessness. That's, that's the end-all argument for them. You don't need to hear witnesses who will prove the president's misconduct because he has a right to be as corrupt as he chooses under our Constitution. And there's nothing you can do about it. God help us if that argument succeeds. You heard no live testimony in this body. There wasn't any live testimony before this body, and I don't recall any of you in that super-secret basement bunker they've been talking about. Now, I'll admit there were 100 members eligible to be there, so maybe I missed one of you. But I don't think you were there for the live testimony in the House. Now, Mr. Sekulow says the president was deprived of his right of calling these witnesses himself and cross-examining these witnesses in the House, but that's not true either because the president was eligible to call witnesses in his defense in the Judiciary Committee and chose not to do so. Now, Mr. Sekulow ended his argument against witnesses with where Mr. Philbin essentially began. It all comes back to the Dershowitz principle. What's the point of witnesses if the president can do whatever he wants under Article 2? What's the point of calling witnesses? What's the point of having a trial if the president can do whatever he wants under Article 2? The only constraining principle, and I think that uh, one of the senators asked yesterday, What's the limiting principle in the Dershowitz argument? If a president can corruptly seek foreign interference in his election because he believes that his election is in the national interest, then you cannot impeach him for it, no matter how damaging it may be to our national security. What is the limiting principle? And I suppose the limiting principle is only this. It only requires the president to believe that his reelection is in the national interest. Well, it would require an extraordinary level of self-reflection and insight for a president of the United States to conclude that his own reelection was not in the national interest. Not long ago, senators of both major parties always worked to accommodate fellow colleagues with differing points of view to arrive at outcomes that would best serve the nation's interests. I wit I, if witnesses are suppressed in this trial and a majority of Americans are left believing the trial was a sham, I can only imagine the lasting damage done to the Senate and to our fragile national consensus. There is a storm blowing through this capital. Its winds are strong 
and they move us in uncertain and dangerous directions. Jefferson once said, I consider trial by jury as the only anchor yet imagined by man by which a government can be held to the principles of its constitution. The only anchor ever imagined yet imagined by man by which a government can be held to the principles of its constitution. I would submit to you, remove that anchor and we are adrift. But if we hold true, if we have faith that the ship of state can survive the truth, this storm shall pass. I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Manager. Mr. Chief Justice. The Majority Leader I is recognized. the absence of a quorum. The Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell asked for a quorum call, placing the Senate in a holding pattern for some time. After then calling for the Senate to go into recess, the majority and minority leaders begin conferring on how next to proceed. After some deliberation, the Senate gavels in, with a resolution being offered by Majority Leader McConnell, followed by amendments offered by the minority leader. Related procedures concerning the articles of impeachment against Donald John Trump, President of the United States, resolve that the record in this case shall be closed and no motion with respect to reopening the record shall be in order for the duration of these proceedings. The Senate shall proceed to final arguments as provided in the impeachment rules, waiving the two-person rule contained in Rule 22 of the Rules of Procedure and Practice in the Senate when sitting on impeachment trials. Such arguments shall begin at 11 a.m. on Monday, February 3rd, 2020, and not exceed four hours, and be equally divided between the House and the President to be used as under the rules of impeachment. At the conclusion of the final arguments by the House and the President, the Court of Impeachment shall stand adjourned until 4 p.m. on Wednesday, February 5th, 2020, at which time the Senate, without intervening action or debate, shall vote on the articles of impeachment. Justice. Mr. Majority Leader. I ask unanimous consent that the Democratic leader or his designee be allowed to offer up to four amendments to the resolution. Further, that I be recognized to make a motion to table the amendment after it's been reported with no intervening action or debate. Is there objection? Without objection, so ordered. The Democratic leader is recognized. Mr. Chief Justice, I have a parliamentary inquiry. The Democratic leader will state the inquiry. Is the Chief Justice aware that in the impeachment trial of President Johnson, Chief Justice Chase, as presiding officer, cast tie-breaking votes on both March 31st and April 2nd, 1868? I am, Mr. Leader. Uh, the one concerned a motion to adjourn. The other concerned a motion to close deliberations. Uh, I do not regard those isolated episodes 150 years ago as sufficient to support a general authority to break ties. If the members of this body, elected by the people and accountable to them, divide equally on a motion, the normal rule is that the motion fails. I think it would be inappropriate for me 
an unelected official from a different branch of government to assert the power to change that result so that the motion would succeed. Now, Mr. Chief Justice, I send an amendment to the desk to subpoena Mulvaney, Bolton, Duffy, Blair, and the White House, OMB, DOD, and State Department documents, and I ask that it be read. The majority leader is recognized. I move to table the amendment. I ask for the yeas and nays. Does any member in the chamber wish to change his or her vote? If not, the yeas are 53, the nays are 47. The motion is agreed to. The Democratic leader is recognized. Mr. Chief Justice, I send an amendment to the desk to subpoena John R. Bolton, and I ask that it be read. The clerk will report. The majority leader is recognized. I move to table the amendment. I ask for the yeas and nays. Is there a sufficient second? There is. The clerk will call the roll. Are there any senators in the chamber wishing to vote or change his or her vote? If not, the yeas are 51, the nays are 49. The motion is agreed to. The Democratic leader is recognized. Mr. Chief Justice, I send an amendment to the desk to subpoena John R. Bolton, provided further that there be one day for a deposition presided over by the Chief Justice and one day for live testimony before the Senate, both of which must occur within five days of the adoption of the underlying resolution, and I ask that it be read. So order. The majority leader is recognized. I move to table the amendment and ask for the yeas and nays. Are there, is there a sufficient second? There is. The clerk will call the roll. Mr. Alexander. Aye. Is there any member in the chamber who wishes to vote or change his or her vote? If no, the yeas are 51, the nays are 49. The motion is agreed to. Mr. Chief Justice. The Senator from Maryland. Mr. Chief Justice, I send an amendment to the desk to have the Chief Justice rule on motions to subpoena witnesses and documents and to rule on any assertion of privilege. And I ask that it be read. The clerk will report. Leader is recognized. Mr. Chief Justice, I move to table the amendment and ask for the yeas and nays. Is there a sufficient second? There is. The clerk will call the roll. Is there any senator in the chamber wishing to vote or change his or her vote? If no, the yeas are 53, the nays are 47. The motion is agreed to. The question occurs on the adoption of Senate Resolution 488. Is there any member in the chamber who wishes to vote or change his or her vote? If no, the yeas are 53, the nays are 47. The resolution is agreed to. Mr. Majority Leader. Mr. Chief Justice, <clears throat> I ask unanimous consent that the Secretary be authorized to include statements of senators explaining their votes, either given or submitted during the legislative sessions of the Senate on Monday, February 3rd, Tuesday, February 4th, and Wednesday, February 5th, along with the full record of the Senate's proceedings and the filings by the parties in a Senate document printed under the supervision of the Secretary of the Senate that will complete the documentation of the Senate's handling 
of these impeachment proceedings. Without objection, so ordered. Further, I ask unanimous consent that when the Senate resumes legislative session on Monday, February 3rd, Tuesday, February 4th, and Wednesday, February 5th, the Senate be in a period of morning business with senators permitted to speak for up to 10 minutes each for debate only. Without objection, so ordered. <clears throat> and finally, I ask unanimous consent that the trial adjourn until 11 a.m. February 3rd and that this order also constitute the adjournment of the Senate. Without objection, so ordered. We are adjourned. And with that, the Senate is adjourned and will reconvene on Monday at 11 a.m. Thank you for listening. The Impeachment is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. From the Goat Rodeo team, supervising producer Megan Adulski, creative producer Shar Dreyer, executive producer Ian Enright. From the Lawfare team, Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes, Margaret Taylor, Michaela Fogel, Quinta Jurassic, Jacob Schultz, David Priest, Hadley Baker, Hannah Chris. Special thanks to Caitlin Riley and John Weiss. The impeachment will continue tomorrow. Until next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.